There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. And helping us move from awareness to action this week is Taru Clavel, a writer, speaker, comparative education specialist, and author of the new book, World Class. Welcome, Taru. Thank you so much, George and Centauri. Excited to have you on to talk about this very, very interesting and obviously important topic and you know what? Before we get into it, Centauri, let's just say fictitiously that you had children and you could send them anywhere for school. Where would you send them? Um, if we're saying country, United <laughs> States. Um, yeah. But honestly, I think, you know, reflecting back on my own public school experience, I think I had a pretty good one. So I would do exactly for my kids what my parents did for me, which is probably like a very American answer, but I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, true. You've 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 had a a fascinating experience with with the education system, not only here in the United States but also in Asia, between between China and Japan. And would love to get your just your 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 path and how all of that came to be. And if you could sort of give us, and, and I'm sure that you will, um, your take on just maybe children and globalism in general as you as you tell us that story. Okay, I think you asked me five questions in one, so yes, I'll do my yes. best. It's 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 uh, my skill as a podcaster. Thank you. Oh, okay. He's really good at that. <laughs> um, so let's see. Hopefully, I will I will answer all of those questions. But if I don't, please remind me. So, I absolutely will. Yes. I have I have three kids, and when my first two were under two years old, we moved to Hong Kong from New York City. And I raised two kids there from 2006 until 10. And my third was actually born in Hong Kong in 2009. And then we moved to Shanghai and were there for two years. And then moved to Tokyo in 2012 and were there for four years. Moved back to the U.S. but to California in 2016 and finally came back to New York in 2018 and that's what my book World Class is about and when we lived overseas I enrolled my kids in the local public schools where we lived and not the international schools so I was able to write a book about the education and parenting practices that take place in the various cities where we lived overseas and try to make it solution-based and a fun read that would empower U.S. parents to make education and parenting decisions uh, back in the U.S. Yeah. Um, oh, and globalization and kids. Yes. Let's see. I think this is a, for me, it's, it's a really important hot-button topic where I don't think we are doing our kids enough we're not doing enough to teach them about the rest of the world. I think the U.S. does suffer from exceptionalism and thinking that, you know, well, everybody speaks English, so it's okay. We don't have to speak another language and and a bunch of other kind of, you know, the U.S. is best kind of thing. And while the world is getting basically much more interconnected and interdependent and competitive, 
we have to prepare our kids for this much more complicated world that they are going to be thrust into. And I think that requires our kids to be flexible and adaptable and empathetic. And um, something that I don't think we do a good job of is we probably have the most multiracial, diverse um, citizenry of any country in the world. And we are at a point right now where we're not even able to kind of appreciate that. We're at, we're at odds and ends in terms of our identity politics. But if we could, I hope, you know, take advantage of that better internally, then we would just be much better as global citizens and role modeling that uh, in, in raising our children to prepare for the, for the wide world that awaits them. Taru, I'm going to ask you a uh, very big question that I didn't know, didn't think I was going to ask until you said just that. Yes. Um, and maybe you can't, I, I think it's interesting when you know folks compare the United States to other um, other countries as far as education. But one of the things that you label as one of our strengths, which I completely agree, is also could be seen as a way that there's a barrier to a lot of achievement, which is any any other country you're going to name is. Com- it's very much homogenous, mm-hmm. whereas the United States has so many different languages, so many different types of people that it's kind of hard to create a specific school culture that will work for all kids. So talk to me mm-hmm. a little bit about how you've seen the homogeneity play out in other countries versus what it could look like uh, here where, where it is super diverse. Well, I think that's one of the most important things that we should be dealing with on a constant basis, right? It's because we have so much diversity uh, religious, racial, cultural, socioeconomic, linguistic, that we have to be, I want to say more than even doubling down, right? This is something that we have to be so intentional and and conscious of in terms of where we're investing in education. So if we know that this is a concern, right, if these days the intergenerational mobility, right, is, is decreasing, right? So so much of your success depends literally on the circumstance into which you were born, which is to me, an atrocity, right? Education should lead to prosperity and opportunity, and it's less and less so. So we have to invest to equalize the opportunities that every child is given, right? So if other countries like Japan is almost 100% racially homogeneous, and in our country it's not, and we do have different values, so we have to invest more in giving every child a fair shake at a fantastic education. That means putting our top teachers in the lower performing schools and paying those teachers potentially more if they have a hard, harder you know, workload and have more challenges. And when it comes to discussions on different values, I think, yes, while absolutely we have different belief systems depending on, depending on our homes, I think at the, in the United States right now, we're at kind of this extreme inflection point where we can't even tell our kids to respect our teachers and to sit up straight or, you know, um, not keep hats on, not keep your iPhone on. Um, and, and it's just it's gotten too extreme. I think there's some general rules of decorum that we can follow that I think teachers in schools should feel empowered to be able to, to teach to our kids. And there, I, I think it's, it's come too it's come too far. I guess the pendulum has swung too far. And teachers are scared to even t- teach basic rules of respect. Um, mm. Mm. So I, I think there's definitely a middle ground. And, you know, and frankly, you know, a lot of teachers are scared to have any conversations about what's going on in, in our political system right now. And 
this is going to make or break their futures, right? What's going on right now. And whether or not you have, if you're, you know, one party or the other party, I think one of the most important parts of civics education and a whole democracy is that we're supposed to be listening to other people's thoughts and opinions and to be able to have intellectual respected dialogue. And right now, if we can't do that in our schools, right, I I fear for what democracy really means and how we're actually going to be able to practice a successful democracy because teachers and I understand are really scared to have these conversations in the classrooms and and you know at the same time maybe they're not being trained or equipped to know how to do that right so I, I, I think it's a really complicated conversation but we topic but we should be having these conversations in our classrooms because you know speech and debate model Congress um, discussing these topics in history, U.S. history classes, these are all really important parts of our functioning democracy. Amen. And I I, uh, like what you did there, how I asked you a question with a thousand different parts to it. I feel like you just did that to Centauri and I, so so I I feel like that's well done. (laughs) So touche, touche, Taru. All right, so I think that there's a lot of important stuff that that I know that both Centauri and I want to talk about. Instead of diving into it from a United States standpoint, can you just tell us how you feel like um, how China and Japan specifically are are handling those issues properly? And I I know that it's different because they're homogenous, but... Well, China's not actually homogeneous. So when we think about Shanghai, there are, like any probably big city... So many migrant workers come and people from all over the country come for work. And so it's a country that has over 50 50 ethnicities and they're all coming to Shanghai. So maybe it appears to be like it's homogeneous. It's it's actually not. But in the case of Shanghai, and this is in in China, you know, it's 1.35 billion people, right? It's, it's, It's got a tremendous tremendous demographic that they have to educate. So they're still grappling with issues of inequity for sure. But something that I did love about my son's school is that, and and I talk about this in world class, when he was in first grade, his best friend was the child of a migrant worker who came, I'm not quite sure what province she came from, but his two front teeth were decaying from cavities. I don't think they knew much about oral hygiene. But he was, and the kids are ranked there academically and for leadership roles, he was a number two ranked student in the class. And it didn't matter what his background was because the teachers and the community, the the fellow students would work with every child so that they could hit those learning expectations. And in his classroom, 95% was the learning expectation. And you stayed after school, you did extra work until you hit that number. And, you know, oftentimes in the U.S., it's 60 or 65 percent. And even if the child doesn't hit that, even through high school, right, even if they don't hit that that number, they're still allowed to pass and move on to the next grade. So that was something that I found really interesting uh, in, in Shanghai. And talking about globalization there, too, I mean, starting in first grade, the kids start learning English. And that's the third most important subject after Chinese language and math and the homeroom teacher and they have subject specific teachers. This is also interesting. So they have one, one teacher who teaches math, another who teaches Chinese, another who does science, another who does English. And by, I kid you not, this was extreme um, or tremendous by fifth grade, most of these kids were fluent in English, right? Never having said a foot out of the, maybe not even the city. 
And, you know, so they grow up with this sense of globalization and they grow up watching movies and TV shows that are from the United States. And, you know, their, their currency, the renminbi, is pegged to the dollar, right? Most currencies are how many dollars to however many, you know, francs or whatever. I guess they use euros now, but, you know, whatever that currency is. So for, for the rest of the world, everybody's looking at that dollar in the U.S. and, and English. Um, so that's just a part of their everyday lives. They're looking at the global prize, the global story. And... When you go to Japan, it is far more homogeneous, um, so they don't necessarily face the same types of issues. And it's um, what I would say that they do fabulously well. And again, this I talk about um, in world class is a, is a wonderful role model. Is starting in first grade, which is when compulsory education begins, they don't have jan- janitorial staff, right? They don't have a cafeteria staff kids clean up after themselves, they mop, they clean the toilets, they serve one another lunch. And while it's not just thinking about chores, because of course, I, th- I think that is an important thing um, for kids to, to partake in, it's that they are not just responsible for their own desks and chairs, or their own homework, or their own pencils kind of a thing. They're responsible for the larger actual physical space and their community. So they are part of something bigger, right? And that's a foundation of global competency and globalization. It's knowing that you are a part of a bigger community to which you are responsible. And so these are lessons that we can learn in the U.S. And I'm not saying that parents would be pleased with removing a janitorial staff, right? I think parents would probably be in uproar if they knew that 30 minutes of a child's day is spent sweeping. Um, I, I, that's just what I would imagine. I'd be okay with that. You would be. I actually would be okay too. That's sure. fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I think these are things that we can. These are there's some things here that we can learn from these overseas practices that teach us to to give every child an equal opportunity at a at a good education and to start taking care of one another. Why do you feel like that's not the case here in the United States? And so this is a good question. I should pull out my book. I don't have it in front of me right now. Um, but one of my um, one of my final chapters, and maybe I can pull it out here, is actually titled. Um, well, actually, all the all the chapters in my of my book are titled after TV shows of the '60s, '70s, and '80s that informed my upbringing. Nice. So, yeah. So chapter <laughs> twelve is, is called "Who's the Boss." Yeah. And the subtitle is "Education in a Nation Where Capitalism, Individuality, and Freedom Prevail." Mm. And so I just wonder if we are, you know, like I went when I can go back to the point about democracy, are we at a point where the pendulum has swung so much where kind of the individuality and capitalism and the me it's like me, me, me is more important than looking at a larger, bigger picture of looking out for everybody? You know, is it a zero sum game? Because I kind of increasingly feel like, you know, if I have a different opinion than you then you are threatening my existence. And that's not the way it should be. That's not at all the way our country was founded. You know, so it's, it's a good question. And I think these are questions that adults, parents, educators, and frankly, students in, in, you know, in, in classrooms with, with their teachers should be discussing. Drew, it was, um, I, it was as you say that, I was at a, um, a fundraiser for 
the American Federation for Children. Yeah, that's right. And they're an education nonprofit based in D.C. And Condoleezza Rice was their keynote speaker. And last week she said, you know, until this country realizes that um, they're our kids, uh, mm-hmm. that every kid is is the neighborhoods, kids, the communities, kids, then this country will not thrive. So to your point about individual uh, individuals, you have so many parents, um, especially in a place like Arizona, where school choice is huge, that are saying like, I want what's I want those kids to do well. But right now, I can only worry about where I put my kids in school. So um, instead of thinking about what can we do collectively to help the neighborhood school, it's what can I do to make sure my kids get into this, the best school in Phoenix or Arizona or New York City. And so to your point about the, the pendulum swinging, swinging one way, I completely agree in that we aren't in this place where we're thinking, how can I help my neighbor's kids? How can I help uh, the, the community's kids, not just my own? It's 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 a it our country isn't it can't succeed right it's the way it's going and this is obviously my opinion but when there's so many kids who need the support and the help that they just are not getting because we don't have the resources available to them you know we're we're only as strong as our weakest link and you know it, it's just not right what's happening. I mean, you know, the Varsity Blues scandal. I mean, it's amazing that it came out when it did because it's something that's been going on for decades. Sure. Right. And people are like, oh, isn't it great? You know, this isn't going to ha- happen anymore. And to me, it's no, it's just going to go deeper underground because we have a fundamentally broken system. I mean, other countries, the best universities for the most part are public. So the whole admissions acceptance uh, process is is transparent and it's much more meritocratic. And I'm not saying it's good to have a high stakes test that determines everything, right? But it's a much more, okay, I get it. Like I have to study these six subjects to get into this school. And if I do well on this test, then I can go to this college. And right now the way it is, is, you know, it's like smoke and mirrors. We don't know how you can get into to whatever university, is it because I'm a good athlete? Is it because I had a connection? Is it because someone made a big donation, right? It's, it's, it's almost like winning the lottery. And when you don't give fair opportunity in education, I mean, this is where our kids, this is their starting line and we're already creating a disadvantage. And there's, there are plenty of studies out now that show that you can be a mediocre student and have access to opportunity and pretty much not produce that much for the greater good and be a top student and be socioeconomically disadvantaged and not have a shot at going to a four-year college, right? And how does that help our nation? I mean, the foundation of public education and the reason why tax dollars go to it is because it's a public good, right? It helps all of us to invest in the education of everyone and and right now i i it, it i'm i'm very i guess i'm perturbed is a nice way of saying it by by where our education mm-hmm. stands true's pissed off and she's yeah, not okay, gonna she's, she's mad as hell she's not gonna take it can i circle back did you said in this study that 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 kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds that had high scores had a hard time getting into universities Absolutely. Yeah. Disadvantage for so many reasons. I'm sorry. Do you want to add something, Centauri? Yeah, true. One of the things that I'm I'm glad you hit on that, and I, I didn't think you would, was this, the studies show that if you are a um, and you put socioeconomic, but I'll put race in it too. If you are a C C student, white kid, rich family, 
you will go on to success no problem. If you are a super smart, top of your class, um, low income black kid, the, the odds of you getting into a good school and persisting through that are slim to none. So it shows that socioeconomics, way more than intelligence or meritocracy, uh, matters a lot more in the American public education system. For sure. And, you know, and, and it's, and yeah, sorry, go and ahead. The thought George. process there is that, that that's a breakdown in the, in the application process or in the, it, in, in the admission standards. No, it's actually, it, it goes, it starts at preschool and there's an inherent bias. And there've been plenty of studies that show that there is this, literally this inherent bias that if you are a dark skinned child, you cannot meet the same learning expectations or you will be a discipline case. And they've actually even had studies where they will, they will, they'll, they have monitors on the teacher's eyes and their eyes will dart towards the black boy in the classroom more than the black girl, the white girl, the Asian girl, the Asian boy, even though they're not doing anything wrong. So that's the inherent bias. And I can tell you that even in Palo Alto, California, which is arguably one of the most educated school districts in the country, right in the backyard of Stanford, and more than 50% of the parents have a master's degree, either For sure. a master's degree or PhD. And until a coalition, literally, of parents advocated for a change in the high school graduation requirements, there they did a study that showed that the black children were not even graduating with the same or I guess graduate, they, they didn't have enough credits to even apply to the UC schools. And these aren't the kids who were, you know, branded problem kids or discipline cases. Some of these students were children of MIT graduates. And so when you look at that as just a case study or an example, it's our inherent bias in this country is so deeply entrenched and practiced, people don't even realize it. Right. So until we open up the eyes of all teachers, educators, parents, bus drivers, you know, anybody in, in this world and, and look at people equally with, with giving kids a fair shot and having this is something that I think about all the time. And I write about this in world class. We have to give every child the same high level learning expectation. And we have to put all the scaffolding around that learning experience to make sure that every child can hit that learning expectation because you know if you are a child who's born into an advantaged circumstance with very educated parents your chances of success are very high but let's say you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you don't have any of that that means society has to come through and provide that scaffolding right and we don't do that we do we do a pretty deplor deplorable job of that right now and you know we look at our school funding model if our local tax dollars are funding our schools and our community supports then that's not going to change right the states have to come in and make that sub they have to subsidize that local tax district because only about average is about 10% of education funding comes from the federal government and, and i i i appreciate everything you just said and i'm i'm glad we sort of have have shifted towards um, the actual action piece on what people can do about this, because um, as I'm listening, it almost seems like it's it's like a hopeless thing, which is often the way that I feel when we're talking about these huge systemic and national issues. It's like, well, what can poor little George do? So I, I want to hear what 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 you think, individual people who are listening that that 
I don't really care what their background is, but but they don't like what they're hearing, and, and they think that what you're saying is absolutely correct, and they want to they want to take action on fixing that. But if 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 I can, so you just said that that the school districts that let's just say it's a poor neighborhood, so they're getting less money, but you just said that that the school district in Palo Alto was still also suffering from the same thing. So it's really not necessarily just money. No, it's not. And I think parents, unfortunately, have to be as educated as possible themselves on the educational experiences and opportunities that their kids are being given in the school. So right now where we are, parents have to roll up their sleeves. They have to talk to the teachers, the administrators, look at the curriculum and get involved in your community. Have your you know, your ears open, your eyes open to what's going on, listen to the buzz and get involved. And that is no easy thing, right? Most parents work, they don't Mm -hmm. have the time to do this. So do do the best that you can and find, you know, I, 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 and I mentioned this in my book, you know, talk to the parents or get in with those parents who are the nosy ones who seem to know everything, (laughs) right? And, and listen to the parents that you can't stand, because they actually have information that maybe makes you cringe, but that's kind of maybe the important information that you don't want to hear, but you really have to hear. Um, and then you have to find every possible resource you can to help your child. And that can include, you know, I mean, it's amazing the resources that are untapped in our communities. They can be retirees, librarians, high school kids who are looking for extra money, college kids who are looking for extra money, now that we have so much technology, and we didn't even get into the to the ills of technology, but one of the things you can find are tons of tutors online that you can hire for, you know, if if they're if they live in a place where the cost of living is low enough, you can hire them for twenty dollars an hour, you know, and get online tutoring for your child. Um, find your people, right? So that if you're working, they're in a group after school care, and it's about the quality of the people, right? You have to be exposing your children to people who care and who are educated enough to read to them, use vocabulary, make them accountable to doing their homework, um, making sure they learn their multiplication tables when maybe the school and the, and, and the teachers are saying, heck, our third graders don't have to learn multiplication anymore because they're going to, you know, they're going to have calculators embedded in their brains. Hmm. Well, that could be the case, but if we're not exercising our brains that way, then our brain will atrophy the way our, our leg muscles will if we're not walking. So this is the kind of stuff you just have to be on top of it as much as possible and find the people. It's all about finding the right people in your community who will set you up and make introductions and give you the gossip and tell you what's going on in the class. Um, because for every busy parent, there's probably a parent or, or a parent who doesn't have time to be that involved in the school. There's probably a parent who is that involved in the school who would probably love to help you. Uh, so, Taru, I'd love your thoughts, and I'm sure you've read this over and over again on the the battle hem of the tiger mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and would love your thoughts on uh, Amy's unique style of parenting school age children and her her thoughts on how do you how do you raise a winner? Um, what give me your thoughts on that? Well, I'll tell you a story from two. Okay, so in 2000, summer of 2017, I was pitching my book proposal to uh, publishing houses in New York City. And I met with several editors, and that book came up as a comparable title to mine. And I kid you not, I would bring it up and I said, oh my gosh, you know, 
Tiger Mom book was one of the funniest books I ever read. And they looked at me like I'd committed a crime, like I was a child abuser, because <laughs> there was nothing funny about that book, right, from their perspective. It was just a book about, it was like a manual on how to abuse your child. And I was like, no, it's so funny. And I'm trying to justify, like, the parts that I laughed at. So a little background. I'm half Japanese, and my mom was a single immigrant mom who, who fresh off the boat from J- Japan, you know, like, I, I don't know, she's been in this country for 50 years. And she's still, you know, anytime she doesn't understand something or makes a mistake, she's like, Oh, miscommunication, you know, it's like, no, it, that's, you know, so <laughs> I grew up in like, in Japanese is my first language. So I, I kind of understand all of that, you know, and my family is in Japan and everything. So when I was reading it, I thought, Oh, my gosh, kindred spirit, you know, like, this is hilarious SHIT, right. And the one thing that I would say about her book is I it is cultural the way, you know, and the way she had her notes out for her daughter to practice the violin. And I mean, and it just it just I mean, it brought back all my childhood memories because I played <laughs> the piano. Um, but what I think it didn't do a good job explaining, but it wasn't it, this wasn't the purpose of the book is the why. Why do they do it this way? And that's why, and it was a motivation for me actually to to write my book, World Class, because what I tried to do was I went to Japan and in China and I, and I pull apart why education is so important and it's a national value and every parent and grandparent and literally like citizen of the country is invested in the education of the, the next generation because they see it as the future of the country. And that's just kind of an inherent and it, you know, and people will say it's all the Confucian values and, and, you know, it's, it's a pure meritocracy, regardless of, of what, what caste you, you were born into, you can move up if you're smart and you do well on your tests and fine, maybe there's a remnant of that. But, but the reality is, is that in these countries, education is the gateway to opportunity. And there's nothing, there's, there's, that's as, sim- that's as simple as that. So when you bring that to the U.S., you know, and, and I don't know if you've been following, but the New York City schools are kind of in turmoil right now trying to figure out their very, um, they say, segregated schools that the gifted and talented and specialized high school programs and stream, um, selective middle schools, you know, they're predominantly Asian, and is this fair and why and they're trying to address this issue and it's not about it's not about socioeconomics either because a lot of these families actually don't have a lot of money but you know these asian families but from the time these kids are born their eye has been on sending their their child to one of these highly specialized and selective schools and they just have a different way of thinking about education where it's you know homework first, then play. You're not going to do club sports before you, you know, get a hundred percent on your math or you have to drill math and conversation at the breakfast and dinner table is about school and what they learned. And yes, sleepovers are secondary to getting homework done. And in fact, sleepovers may not take place in your household. Um, and these households are for the most part, multi-generational or historically have been. So it's just, what I try to do, I think her book, I still think is very funny. So forgive me for feeling that way. Um, but I think hopefully I, I try to explain why, why she does kind of the, the stuff that she does. Perfect. Well, I have not read that one, but, but it, it, it sounds like it's definitely worth a read. So, 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, well. So, so if you would, Teru, I, I think that we probably have a good sense of of why it is you wrote the book and what your perspectives are. But somebody who 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 picks it up, what what can they expect to really get out of it? Well, hopefully they'll get a, a little bit of a chuckle. It is fifty percent anecdotal and fifty percent research, and. I mean, I'm a parent. I made lots of mistakes. I was an education journalist in Asia, and I have a master's in comparative and international education. So what I try to do is is to share my story and to educate any reader, um, parents, educators, on what's going on in the in the classrooms and homes of these other of the other other countries and. These countries have students that are academically way out, outperforming the U.S. on on many standardized um, assessments, and you know I, there's so many beautiful things that we have in the United States, um, and, and we talked about one of them, the multiculturalism and the innovative spirit and the creativity that we have, and that appreciation of the individual is 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 maybe unparalleled, um, but. We sometimes miss the foundational things like the, the you know, the, the basics, like, you know, we don't really teach our kids grammar anymore or basic rules of, of decorum and respect. And so hopefully my book gives readers a, just a different perspective. I think, you know, and I hear this all the time from parents. It's it's really hard being a parent. I mean, I, I'd like to meet one parent who doesn't think it's the hardest job on the planet because... <laughs> that person would make a lot of money. You know, like, how, how does that happen? Sure. Um, it is so hard. And you're constantly second-guessing your decisions and looking at looking your child and wondering if you're going to screw them up for life or if you're empowering them with, you know, all writing all your wrongs having grown up kind of a thing. You know, but hopefully my book will empower parents to feel a little more, to, 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 to have solutions on, some of the dilemmas that we all face um, and to not feel alone in that. And it's not only my perspective, but, but what it's, what's working in other countries um, and how we can come together as a country also in this country and, and help, like um, Centauri said, not just our own children, but all of our children. Because the reality is our one child, you know, your own child, whether it be one or three, their success in the greater world is, I believe, predicated on the success of their fellow citizenry. So, you know, the higher the higher the education levels are for everyone, the greater the opportunities and experiences of, of each of us. Excellent. So that was a very long answer. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I think that's really well said. Excellent. Well, Taru, where can people find out more about you? Where can they get a copy of the book? Yeah, so I my book, World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. It's way too long a title, so you just type in World Class. <laughs> um, and my name, Teru Clavel, and I have my website, teruclavel.com, T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L. I'm active on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. And, you know, I think if we can work together, I have a lot of solutions. And I think a lot of parents are are confused about how to do this, uh, raising their kids today. It's really, really complicated. So reach out to me um, and let's work together. And uh, I'd love to hear from everyone. Yeah. Excellent. Centauri. Answered all my questions. I loved your thoughts on... uh tiger mom and uh good luck to you i'm excited to hear uh 
if the book actually changes anyone's minds or thoughts or any policies actually so keep us posted yeah, and and if you happen to pick up my book, which would I I would love for you to do, and and your and your listeners too, let me know if you have any questions. And it is funny; you will laugh, I promise. There's been a lot of LOLs sent my way. So <laughs> perfect. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Drew. Thank you for having had me. Thank you. And thanks as always for listening. And remember to keep questioning because the struggle is real. Uh, so, Taru, I'd love your thoughts, and I'm sure you've read this over and over again, on the, the battle hem of the tiger mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and would love your thoughts on uh, Amy's unique style of parenting school-age children and her, her thoughts on how do you, how do you raise a winner. Um, what, give me your thoughts on that. Well, I'll tell you a story. From two, okay, so in 2000, summer of 2017, I was pitching my book proposal to uh, publishing houses in New York City. And I met with several editors and that book came up as a comparable title to mine. And I kid you not, I would bring it up and I said, oh my gosh, you know, Tiger Mom book was one of the funniest books I ever read. And they looked at me like I'd committed a crime, like I was a child abuser because (laughs) there was nothing funny about that book, right? From their perspective, it was just a book about, it was like a manual on how to abuse your child. And I was like, no, it's so funny. And I'm trying to justify like the parts that I laughed at. So a little background, I'm half Japanese and my mom was a single immigrant mom who, who fresh off the boat from Japan, you know, like, I don't know, she's been in this country for 50 years. And she's still, you know, anytime she doesn't understand something or makes a mistake, she's like, Oh, miscommunication, you know, it's like, no, that's, you know, so (laughs) I grew up in like, in Japanese is my first language. So I, I kind of understand all of that, you know, and my family is in Japan and everything. So when I was reading it, I thought, Oh, my gosh, kindred spirit, you know, like, this is hilarious, SHIT, right. And the one thing that I would say about her book is I it is cultural the way, you know, and the way she had her notes out for her daughter to practice the violin. And I mean, and it just it just I mean, it brought back all my childhood memories because I played <laughs> the piano. Um, but what I think it didn't do a good job explaining, but it wasn't it, this wasn't the purpose of the book is the why. Why do they do it this way? And that's why, and it was a motivation for me actually to to write my book, World Class, because what I tried to do was I went to Japan and in China and I, and I pull apart why education is so important and it's a national value and every parent and grandparent and literally like citizen of the country is invested in the education of the, the next generation because they see it as the future of the country. And that's just kind of an inherent and it, you know, and people will say it's all the Confucian values and, and, you know, it's, it's a pure meritocracy, regardless of, of what, what caste you, you were born into, you can move up if you're smart and you do well on your tests and fine, maybe there's a remnant of that. But, but the reality is, is that in these countries, education is the gateway to opportunity. And there's nothing, there's, there's, that's as, sim- that's as simple as that. So when you bring that to the U.S., you know, and, and I don't know if you've been following, but the New York City schools are kind of in turmoil right now trying to figure out their very, um, they say, segregated schools that the gifted and talented and specialized high school programs and stream, um, selective middle schools, you know, they're predominantly Asian, and is this fair and why and they're trying to address this issue and it's not about 
it's not about socioeconomics either because a lot of these families actually don't have a lot of money but you know these asian families but from the time these kids are born their eye has been on sending their their child to one of these highly specialized and selective schools and they just have a different way of thinking about education where it's you know homework first then play you're not going to do club sports before you you know get 100% on your math or you have to drill math and conversation at the breakfast and dinner table is about school and what they learned and yes sleepovers are secondary to getting homework done and in fact sleepovers may not take place in your household um, and these households are for the most part multi-generational or historically have been so it's just what I try to do I think her book I still think is very funny so forgive me for feeling that way um, but I think hopefully I, I try to explain why why she does kind of the, the stuff that she does perfect well I have not read that one but but it it, it sounds like it's definitely worth a read so excellent yeah. well well so so if you would Teru, I, I think that we probably have a good sense of of why it is you wrote the book and what your perspectives are but somebody who 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 picks it up what what can they expect to really get out of it well, hopefully they'll get a, a little bit of a chuckle. It is 50% anecdotal and 50% research. And I mean, I'm a parent. I made lots of mistakes. I was an education journalist in Asia and I have a master's in comparative and international education. So what I try to do is, is to share my story and to educate any reader, um, parents, educators on what's going on in the, in the classrooms and homes of these other of the other, other countries and these countries have students that are academically way out, outperforming the US on on many standardized um, assessments and you know I, there's so many beautiful things that we have in the United States um, and, and we talked about one of them the multiculturalism and the innovative spirit and the creativity that we have and that appreciation of the individual is 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 maybe unparalleled um but we sometimes miss the foundational things like the the you know the, the basics like you know we don't really teach our kids grammar anymore or basic rules of of decorum and respect and so hopefully my book gives readers a, just a different perspective i think you know, and I hear this all the time from parents. It's it's really hard being a parent. I mean, I, I'd like to meet one parent who doesn't think it's the hardest job on the planet because <laughs> that person would make a lot of money. You know, like, how, how does that happen? Sure. Um, it is so hard. And you're constantly second guessing your decisions and looking at looking at your child and wondering if you're going to screw them up for life or if you're empowering them with, you know, all writing all your wrongs, having grown up kind of a thing, you know, but hopefully my book will empower parents to feel a little more to, to, to have solutions on some of the dilemmas that we all face um, and to not feel alone in that and it's not only my perspective but but what it's what's working in other countries um, and how we can come together as a country also in this country and and help like um, Centauri said not just our own children but all of our children because the reality is our one child you know your own child whether it be one or three their success in the greater world is, I believe, predicated on the success of their fellow citizenry. So, you know, the higher the higher the education levels are for everyone, 
the greater the opportunities and experiences of, of each of us. Excellent. So that was a very long answer. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I think that's really well said. Excellent. Well, True, where can people find out more about you? Where can they get a copy of the book? Yeah, so I my book, World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. It's way too long a title, so you just type in World Class. <laughs> um, and my name, Teru Clavel, and I have my website, teruclavel.com, T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L. I'm active on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. And, you know, I think if we can work together, I have a lot of solutions, and I think a lot of parents are are confused about how to do this, uh, raising their kids today. It's really, really complicated. So reach out to me, um, and let's work together, and uh, I'd love to hear from everyone. Yeah. Excellent. Centauri. Answered all my questions. I loved your thoughts on... uh tiger mom and uh good luck to you i'm excited to hear uh if the book actually changes anyone's minds or thoughts or any policies actually so keep us posted yeah and and if you happen to pick up my book which would i i would love for you to do and and your and your listeners too let me know if you have any questions and it is funny you will laugh i promise there's been a lot of lols sent my way so (laughs) perfect yeah yeah excellent well thank you so much drew thank you for having had me thank you And thanks, as always, for listening. And remember to keep questioning because the struggle is real. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it, and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course, and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show.